Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Bob Taylor, who is a former U.S. Air Force major who flew 11 combat missions in Operation Desert Storm. He is also the author of From Service to Success, New Mission, New Purpose, and New Journey to a Great Life. I'm excited to have Bob Taylor on today because in his book, he talks about the different ways in which we can forgive ourselves and also the healthy habits that we can start to inhabit to lead a healthy and successful life. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you, Leo. It's uh, it's very much my honor to be uh, on your show today. Um, I'm excited to have you on because when we talk about forgiveness, uh, you know, for the listeners out there, this is not just something that um, is related to people who have served in the military. I think a lot of us struggle with being able to forgive ourselves, whether we're forgiving ourselves, you know, for past actions or events or for failed relationships or for a weakness that we see in ourselves or just even insignificant mistakes in our lives or people that we've judged or lost hopes or dreams. We all struggle with forgiving ourselves. But before we get into that, um, how are you doing today, Bob? What got you out of bed this morning? Ooh, what got me out of bed today was uh, I really like the phase of life that I'm in right now. I was just uh, presenting to my company. We had a stay of the company address, and I announced that uh, I've had a professional career now for over 40 years. The last 30 years after the Air Force, I've been in the medical device industry. And so I'm kind of entering in uh, the final segment of my career. And I've got this phrase that I'm using is finish strong. So I've got a number of um, passions that I'm pursuing. One is uh, getting the word out on uh, from service to success and the Associated Patriot Promise Foundation, where we're going to be building the Patriot Promise Academy to help veterans if they went in for a boot camp to go into the military, I believe that there should be a reboot camp for coming into the civilian world, and that's the Patriot Promise Academy. And then I've got another uh, kind of priority is to generate some wealth for the employees that work with me and have helped me succeed here. So uh, we've got some very exciting things. The company's growing. We added 21 employees last year, and uh, just some really exciting new opportunities in front of us. You know, you talked about, <clears throat> and I like that phrase reboot camp, because I've read about that in past literature and even seen it on YouTube videos where I can't remember what year it was, but, and I think it was especially like for Vietnam vets, there there was a, a reboot camp. They didn't call it that, but it was basically to help vets transition back into the civilian world. It was wildly successful, and I don't know why they canceled it or ended it. I, I would, I would think maybe finances. But can you can you give us an idea of what a reboot camp would look like and what that would entail and and why it's needed? Sure. So when when we go into the military, we enter in a couple different paths. One is uh, through boot camp for enlisted folks. And then there's officer's training school or 
or one of the academy's officers. And basically what the mission is of the military is to take, to go from the many to one. So they take all of us as individuals and run us through this boot camp. And at the end of it, we come out with a singular mission and singular purpose. Part of that is we we also get specialized training and, and we put a lot of effort into becoming great at what we do in the military. And we have a strong sense of purpose and, uh, you know, we would never do anything to let the the guy or gal that's next to us down. And uh, it's just a, an incredible bond that we build with everyone that's gone through the same experience of boot camp or, or officer's training school. Well, when we, when we finish our military experience, we, we kind of just leave all of that behind. And we go, instead of going from the many to one, we go from the one to many. And there's no real purposeful way for us to do that. So roughly half of veterans handle that transition pretty well, whether it's, you know, they've got a great support network at home, they, their degree or profession kind of lined up when they got out and um, they're just really resilient people and they do well. But about half the veterans struggle and they have lost a sense of real purpose, a real passion. And there's no reboot camp to prepare them. Uh, so I'm the owner of a company and I interview everyone that comes to the company that ends up working here. And one of the questions I ask is, you know, forget about the job that you're interview that you're interviewing for. What is it that you are truly passionate about? What do you want in life? And I have people very frequently say, you know, no one has ever asked me that. And they're just not prepared to really contemplate what their true passion in life is. And in my opinion, that's the most important question to answer in a reboot camp is what do you truly want in life? What, what can you do that is going to give you a sense of something greater than yourself? And uh, the, the real reason that I think this is important is People feel like what they did in the military was really important. And I want them to know that their best days aren't behind them. Their best days weren't what they did in the military, but they've got great things ahead of them. So how do you help the vets explore and discover what they're passionate about? I mean, there's so many books out there and seminars and YouTube videos about how to discover and find your passion. How, how do you, what are the steps? Like what's the, what's the first step in that? So the, the very first step is to create an environment of gratitude. And I don't know, Leo, if you're a, a person that writes things down or, but the, the best way to do it is to every day when you wake up, you write down five things that you're grateful for. And even on those days where making that list of five things might seem really hard, those are the best days to do it. You just have to create a mindset where when you look out in the world, 
you see things to be grateful for. Uh, could be, you know, the pet that you have or the relationship that you have with your spouse or, you know, something that happened to you at work the previous day. But once, once that starts to happen, it has an effect on the, the mindset to start to open, to softly open the mind to new possibilities. So I would say the very first step is to create a mindset of gratitude. I love that because I was just listening to Dr. Andrew Huberman. He has a, a podcast, Huberman Podcast, and he's talking about creativity. And in that, he was exploring this concept of divergent thinking, which is where you take an idea or concept and then you try to come up with as many as ideas related to it. And what I found is, is that we're in a place of, of despair and hopelessness and depression. What we deem as possibilities and alternatives uh, dwindle down to one or nothing, you know, where, where you're just so hopeless, where you're like, it's, it's either this or death. It's either, you know, it's like the, the worst end of two extremes. And so what I hear you saying is that when we come into this place of gratitude, then what that does is it kind of helps us to soften the brain and explore more possibilities of what's possible for us. Am I hearing that correctly? That's that's absolutely right. So, Leo, I, you know, talking about my personal mental health is not on the list of the top five things I want to do in my day. But uh, I've decided that I'm going to share this thing. You know, if I was here talking about a broken leg, you and I would probably be laughing about how I did it and all the silly things that go along with with the injury like that. But when it's mental health, uh, depression, irritability, um, or anger, well, then we don't talk about it. And so I suffered for almost two decades with depression with for the most of that time frame without treatment. And uh, it's difficult. You know, I describe it as as living in molasses where everything's a little slow and hard. Uh, moving around is difficult and it just life is less interesting. And so I understand the challenges of depression and irritability. And um, the book I wrote from Service to Success talks about what we can do to start moving from that. You know, the best part of my story isn't about my worst days of depression, irritability, and anger. Um, the best part of my story is how I've worked to overcome that and the work I've done with the VA, the work I've done with, you know, counselors and um, sometimes with medication, sometimes without and uh, and just working through it. Yeah, because I know that you, you know, got some help from the VA and also in the medical hospitals. What were some of the, the tools and and concepts that you remember from those days that helped you move through this depression, irritability, and anger? So I would say that my situation became acute 
uh, I started having nightmares about six months after uh, my combat experience in Desert Storm. I don't know why, because I didn't face, you know, I was in a B-52 flying over a target. I didn't, I wasn't on the ground doing hand-to-hand combat, but it affected my subconscious and I started having these nightmares. But then about six months later, they went away. So I just kind of pressed forward. And then 16 years later, the nightmares came back. And I, I say they came back with a vengeance because I I got to the point where I was afraid to sleep. Um, I started drinking a little bit to help me go to sleep. And then I started drinking more and more. And uh, I just got to the point where I wasn't the version of myself that I wanted to be. So I went to the VA and uh, their first concern for a veteran is we need to get our sleep. And if we're not getting sleep, we're sleep deprived. And that does all kinds of bad things. So their first efforts were to help me to sleep. So I started on, uh, you know, Ambien for um, a sleeping pill. And then they use this, this drug off label. But effectively what it did was it, I would still have the nightmares, but in the morning I would I wouldn't remember any of them. So what that does is it eliminates the fear factor of going to sleep. And then I didn't know this, but a psychologist can actually, uh, through coping skills and and through treatment, can actually help you reprogram your mind so you stop having nightmares. And that just blew me away. That was one of the most critical things for me is that the the fear of going to sleep went away and eventually I had to wean myself off of Ambien because it's got all kinds of side effects and my kids would find me around the house half asleep and half awake and so you know I I was able to wean off some of the medications and um, and rely on some of the coping skills that the psychologists um, gave me the, I think the one most memorable, uh, coping skill was if you picture, um, a funnel and at the, at the bottom of the funnel is where, you know, you lose your temper, you have anger and, and what you would do is you would look at what, what you could do to avoid going all the way to the bottom of this funnel. And you, it just made you more self-aware. It made me more self-aware of everything that was around me. And I began to step-by-step get further away from that anger and irritability and avoid the triggers or uh, learn how to deal with triggers. And um, just, I continually worked my way up to changing what they call false beliefs. And so I, I remember very um, vividly a lot of the treatments I had, but it's just, it's kind of a long journey and it takes a lot of work. Yeah. I, I know that you talk so much about false beliefs and, and working your way through that funnel. And, and I think the funnel works because it gives us an imagery of what's happening and it kind of makes what feels so intangible, tangible on some level. And I would imagine, you know, being a person in the military that, you know, being able to work with your hands and being able to see and touch a thing uh, really becomes helpful. The 
when you talk about she helps you to reprogram your mind, uh, was there another coping strategy? So, I mean, when I think about this funnel and it anger's at the bottom of it, what's the step after that? Like, okay, you see anger at the bottom and I don't want to get to the bottom and reach the, 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 the point where, you know, of, of no return. Um, what is, what are you doing with your mind after that to cope with the emotion? You mean if, if I got to the bottom and pass that or what I would see next before that? Well, it, it sounds like what you were saying was she had you imagine a funnel and at the bottom of the funnel was anger. And then you're visualizing what you need to do to not reach the bottom of the right. funnel. So if, yeah. What for, would that look like? Yeah. So for me, the kind of like the more volatile um, episodes of anger, that's at the bottom of the, at the funnel. Uh, what I recognize is just before that I'd be, you know, swearing or, you know, using, you know, bad language and, and being just, really uh, verbally volatile. And so that was my first thing is, okay, if I start, you know, dropping an F-bomb or or using uh, that kind of language with people, I need to kind of recognize where I'm at. And then once I recognize there's a step before that, well, then what was the step before the language? Well, it could be that um, I felt disrespected. Well, were people being really disrespectful or was that my perception on what they were saying? And so those false beliefs of when someone says something and I take it as being disrespectful, now, now I could open myself up to thinking, well, maybe they weren't being really disrespectful. They were just stating an opinion. And so it's just one step on top of the other that gets you to kind of keep stepping out. Uh, that definitely brings it home for me. So what it sounds like you're saying is, you know, when you think about what your rock bottom is, right, whether it's somebody who is drinking or feeling suicidal or depressed, it's like, okay, what what was happening before that? What were my behaviors? What were my actions? What were the emotions before that and start to kind of peel back the layers that kind of led you to that place so that in the future we can become better at identifying when we're starting to walk down those steps or fall into the funnel of where we were before. And the, the big thing about it, Leo, is that, you know, we're always looking for that off ramp, that exit from going all the way down the funnel. And just these little tips and tricks give us that ability. And the other thing that it does for us, it turns us into, you know, instead of just being a victim of our thinking, now we can start to practice being aware of our surroundings and aware of our feelings and aware of what's going on. And the harder we work at identifying those precursor events or those precursor habits, the easier it is for us to take an off-road. And, you know, sometimes that off-road is 
look, this situation isn't, isn't good for me. Um, you know what? I'm just going to go take a walk. I'm going to go get my head straight. Or I'm just going to give us some time away from each other so that we don't say something that we regret later. And, um, you know, if all we do is we kind of, I call it the red screen. If, if we just see the red screen and ignore everything that's going on around us, we're going to end up at the bottom of that funnel. You know, you talked earlier about, you know, having PTSD, having the nightmares, although you didn't experience the hand-to-hand combat. Did that add to some feeling of guilt? Was there some feeling of guilt or like shame? Because how could I be experiencing this if I didn't have hand-to-hand combat? Like what, what else were you experiencing? Yeah, so I felt odd. You know, going to the VA and getting treatment, um, you know, who am I? I, You know, there are veterans that have sacrificed far more than I have and have been in much more violent situation. But the thing is, is it's not only what we have after boot camp. We take with us into the military all of the baggage that we have, you know, some Some people have childhood trauma. Some people have adulthood trauma. And whatever that baggage is, we take it with us to the military. My biggest fear has been and probably still is having other military members kind of judge me for standing up and talking about this. Um, Because I think as a community, veterans can kind of be uh, hard on each other. Um, but I've decided, and I'm much more comfortable, uh, just coming out and talking about it. And and my message might not be for everyone, but it's for the one or two, maybe of your listeners that need to hear this message that there's a path forward. And it's not just the path to survival. It's a, it's a path to having a phenomenal, um, life. Yeah, and so let, let's hop into that because the self forgiveness is this when when you wrote this book, it, was it in mind? Did you have in mind the people who may not have engaged in the hand to hand on the boots, boots on the ground type of combat, or did you see a, a lot of other veterans struggling with forgiving themselves, and and what part of themselves do they have a, a struggle with forgiving? So um, that's interesting. The um, the majority of veterans that struggle also have a self-forgiveness issue, many of them. And where it comes in is, and people in the civilian world do this too, is if they were in an accident, someone might say, well, I should have been driving and that wouldn't have happened. Or in combat, it, you know, I was supposed to go on that, um, that patrol and if I would have been there, I would have kept my my buddy alive. Or that person uh, stepped in to save me, and that's my fault. I shouldn't have been there. Um, I think veterans have that skill of self-blame uh, on a scale of 1 to 10. They're pretty close to a 10. And then 
what happens is they ruminate on that. They just play that scene over and over and over. And they hold themselves accountable for things that they really aren't accountable. We're not superhumans. We can't solve every uh, situation that we face. And so um, that's that's why I wanted to touch on self-forgiveness, not only for uh, my own experience, but I had read that many, many veterans experience problems with forgiving themselves. So what what is the first step to self-forgiveness? So, you know, I, I don't try and project my religion onto other people. And I didn't really address my faith too much in the book, but um, I, um, I'm a very faithful person. And every Sunday we go and the very first thing we do in service is we confess and ask for forgiveness. And I think that's a big part of it. First, recognize that you're holding yourself to account for something that you probably shouldn't. You may have caused pain to someone uh, by something that you did or something that you didn't do, but that we're human and we deserve forgiveness. And that's, so that's a self conversation is to recognize, maybe confess that we've done someone wrong, either in what we've said, what we've done or what we've left undone. And that we want to be forgiven and forgiveness isn't necessarily always for the person that's doing the forgiving. It's for the, for the person doing I'm sorry, it's not always for the person being forgiven, it's for the person doing the forgiveness. So the exercise of forgiving ourselves is a really healthy feeling. And so one of the tricks that I recommend for for forgiveness, for self-forgiveness, is to write down whatever you think you've done that's really bad. You write it down on a piece of paper. And then you take that to either a metal wastebasket or a frying pan or whatever, and you just light it on fire and burn it. And it it has a very strong impact because you wrote it down, which is the confession. And when you burn it, it, it vaporized. It's gone. And you have to really internalize that that is, in fact, what you're doing yeah i like the idea that it's almost akin to in the morning i like to journal just to kind of do a brain dump and then i crumble the paper up and throw it in the trash like i never want to look at it again and it's an opportunity for me to just divulge what's bothering me what i'm upset by what i'm grateful for uh what I'm apologizing for making amends, but, you know, to get it out there and then uh, be done with it and, and kind of move on. But I also love the the act of setting the paper on fire because it, it's so visual and visceral. And I, I believe that when we create a, a routine or ceremony around the thing that it sticks with us uh, a little longer. Um, and yeah. And then I think, we have to internalize that 
too, because we can talk about forgiveness and say, you know, I forgive you or I'm, you know, I want to forgive myself. But we have to really visualize that forgiveness and the cleansing of of whatever that is that we hold on to, the pain, the um, the hurt. We need to visualize that being cleansed away from us. And then that makes it really meaningful. Yeah, I like that you emphasize the internalization of it. I, I took an improv class and there would be this exercise where you stood in front of someone and you would repeat the same word over and over again. So it could be like, I love you. And then the person would say, I love you. And then you keep saying it and you notice that every time you said it, it came from a different place. It, it, initially, you were just saying it from your head because it was the exercise. And then it would, you know, move down to your throat and then in your chest. And then at some point, you you would notice your entire body would be saying, I love you. And, and that's when you knew, like, you really were internalizing it and you were in the present moment. And so I, I, that idea of like, not just saying it, but taking the time to feel it, to, to connect with it and visualize it, uh, is so important. Cause what we're trying to do, Leo, is we're trying to, what happens when we hold that guilt, it's like a dark energy that we've invited into our, into ourselves. And we kind of sometimes we wallow in it. We use it as a blanket. We're comfortable with it. And what we need to do is we need to boot it out. We need to get rid of that energy. And so whatever we can do to visualize bringing something positive into our life and kind of pushing away the negative, however we can visualize that or internalize that, it's going to have a profound impact on us. And so what's the second step we're looking at here, Bob? Well, I, I think it's it's just an effort of um, repeat the, the first couple steps of self-forgiveness and then avoiding the practices that accumulate that guilt. So while we're forgiving ourselves, we don't want to be in a constant practice of holding ourselves responsible for things that we really don't have control over. So it's just like being self-aware of these precursors of, of anger and irritability. It's also recognizing what we're inviting into our, our lives or into our minds. So just continue to work at learning about what we invite into our lives and um, while we practice those basic steps of self-forgiveness. Yeah, because I heard you earlier mention that a, a lot of the thoughts that are associated with, you know, beating ourselves up are the shoulds, right? I should have did this. I should have done, did that. Or if I would have did this, or if I would have done that, you know, like those types of thoughts are indicators that 
you know, we are holding ourselves accountable for things that were out of our control. And, and really we can't, the, the truth of it is we can't go back in time. It's, it's a brutal truth of life, right? We can't go back in time and, and do or undo the things that, that we wish we would have. Uh, the other hard truth is, you know, there's a strong possibility that had, had things gone away that we thought they would have, something else would have happened. There, there's just, um, there's no benefit to anyone involved of holding ourselves accountable for something that we really didn't have control over. And I, I would venture to say that anyone that may have been injured due to some of these things or, or a buddy was, was killed in combat over something that we think we should have or should not have done, I would venture to say that they're the ones that would push for that forgiveness and not want people to hold themselves accountable. Yeah. And I also want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, military service people come into the military with baggage already with, you know, traumas or events or experiences that, um, not determined, but factor into how they're handle how they're able to handle their transition out of the military. You know, if you were abused or neglected, or um, you know had any type of major trauma before you even went into the military, and then you leave the military without any support or family or any things like that, that's only going to compound your ability to cope and transition back into out of the civilian world. Am I, am I hearing you correctly in saying that? Absolutely. If, um, if someone had trauma before they went in the military, but, but it seemed to be pushed aside, uh, that trauma was, was off to the side doing push-ups and jumping jacks and getting stronger. So when we get out of the military, it, it's still waiting there. It needs to be dealt with. And so that is something that um, there's just no hiding from the impact that light, that um, the effects of life, uh, what we experience in our life, there's no hiding from it. We still have to deal with it. And so, you know, whether, whether I was, um, diagnosed with PTSD or, or, uh, or not, I received benefit of dealing with all the challenges that I've had in my life. And whether it was during the military or before the military. And I think that's just an important part of this is that so many of us need help. And, um, that's one of my hopes in writing this book and having these conversations with people like you is I just want to have the conversation. I'll have this conversation with anyone. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, I learn about myself and the person I'm talking to uh, gain something from it. You know, I've heard other military, about other military service people not going to receive services, not going to get mental health. What have you found has been a reason for that? 
for them not getting help at all. It's a, it's a common thing too. It's, it's kind of like a bravado uh, machismo thing where uh, guys say, or gals say, I don't need any help. I can do it myself. Uh, They're afraid of a stigma, you know, that might be placed on them if they go to get help. Uh, I'm here to tell you that they're, uh, the stigma that you're worried about is inconsequential relative to the benefit that you can get in your life. But I, th- I think the most common aspect of it is, um, and very much in the, in the fabric of military services, I can handle this myself. Um, that leads to substance abuse, uh, poor relationships, uh, negative outcomes, and unfortunately, um, 640 times a day, a veteran attempts suicide, which is just mind-boggling. Everyone knows about the 22 veterans who commits who die from suicide every day, but they're not aware that 640 veterans attempt it every day. About 1,500 are thinking about their plans for suicide. And 5,500 veterans are um, having uh, suicide ideation. So um, it's not working. You know, the I'll do it myself is not working. Was there a moment for you where you thought about or attempted? No, I never got to that that point in my life. Um, you know, I've, I've, when you talked about the shame and the guilt and the self-forgiveness for me, uh, my biggest regret in life is that I waited 16 years to go to the VA. You know, I just, like I said, I wasn't the version of the person I wanted to be. I was irritable. Uh, I wasn't the, the best husband I wanted to be wasn't the best father I wanted to be. And um, my wife and I were just talking the other day, you know, what would our lives have been like if we could experience life like we are right now? And that's a really tough question to ask me because, you know, I, I feel terrible about that. How did you and your wife navigate that time together? Uh, like, did you, was there a point where you went to couples therapy or was it just about you going to therapy and, and making changes? Was there something that you two did together? We, you know, at times we would, um, and I don't think we benefited from that type of therapy because the therapist was, was treating us as a normal everyday couple. They weren't treating us as a, a veteran with PTSD, with a wife that um, loved her husband but didn't know how to deal with the irritability and depression. So it's it's not going to be effective if you don't start at kind of the root of the problem. Wow, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think would be of benefit to the listeners? 
Well, I will share with you. Um, I just recently went through a MDMA treatment. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they're experimenting with MDMA, which is goes by the street name of ecstasy and psilocybin uh, for treatment of PTSD. And, and so I was able to get into a research pro program where I tried, um, where I took a treatment. It was, you know, with a practitioner and, and very controlled environment. And that, that imagery of the forgiveness and healing and, um, all the pain and irritability uh, that was all washed away. And uh, what I experienced was a, was like an ancient ritual of cleansing and healing. And it was uh, an experience that has transformed my life. For people who are listening in, are there um, considerations or, or things you people, you think people should be aware of uh because i've heard great things about it i've just i've heard inconsistent feedback from it and so what do you think that was part of your process that made it feel successful for you well i think a big part of it is who do you have that's guiding you through the process and there are people that are going out you know going down to peru for ayahuasca treatment and um, my practitioner doesn't think that that's a good idea. And um, so it took a lot of faith for me and trust in this practitioner. And so I think that was a big part of it was was knowing that I was going to be treated with uh, with uh, respect and dignity and and uh, and and safe in that whole environment. But uh, I didn't experience anything negative. I was definitely anxious. Uh, I was very interested in the treatment, but I was also pretty nervous about how it was gonna go. How many uh, treatments did you undergo? Uh, so this treatment uh, consisted of three pre-treatment meetings. Uh, preparatory meetings. The the last of the three was the day before my my experience. And then uh, I have had one one um session or treatment and then three uh counseling sessions afterwards. Wow. And then and then that was it. And so what part of that was eye opening for you? Because earlier, you know, I know you talked about how the therapy was beneficial and um, some, you know, psychiatric meds may have helped you. What did this add to it or how did this shift your perspective? So, you know, there are side effects to every medication that you take. And so I was on antidepressants for 12 years. And uh, the first one uh, kind of lost its effects. So I changed and some of my side, you know, there's there's intimacy issues. There's um, one of the tough things for me is I was a 6:30 a.m. person my whole life, and on this these antidepressants, it was hard for me to get up by eight o'clock. So, um, I wanted something that was going to eliminate my need to be on these medications. The 
the probably the biggest eye-opening part was I had to um I had to stop taking and you can't just abruptly stop taking your dep- antidepressant. It's uh, addictive. So you have to, what they call titrate or wean yourself off. And when I did that, I was reminded why I was on the medication in the first place. My depression was, you know, back in full swing. My irritability. And when I talk about irritability, everyone experiences irritability with, you know, that one family member that always says the wrong thing at the wrong time. And uh, the irritability that I experienced was everyone was like that. And the world around me was thorny and, and just unpleasant. And so I, when I came off that medication, I was reminded of all the stuff that I was carrying around and all that the antidepressant was doing was kind of pushing that below the surface. And so this ritualistic cleansing that I experienced was so profound that, um, I mean, I immediately afterwards, I felt different and I still do. I, um, I, my biggest fear was that my wife wouldn't believe that I was different and she's been phenomenal in accepting uh, the changes that I've gone through and uh, it's, it's had other differences that I wouldn't expect. It's affected how I interact with, with other people, with, with my family. Um, One thing I noticed is that I was even, I was the loss of my parents many years ago, kind of resurfaced that emotion, that sadness that I had, resurfaced after this treatment for some reason and it just reminded me how special and that unconditional love that we get from our family how important that is so it sounds like you know with having a such supportive environment like you felt with your therapist and also you know the drug treatments and and the therapy that went along with it it allowed you to feel more connected to yourself and then also to the people around you. It did. And it, it, um, it's hard for me to describe Leo, but this cleansing that I went through, I mean, I visually gathered up this, these negative things that were in my, my body and my spirit I gathered them up and just cast them out. And I did this, you know, four or five times, but that uh, visualization of ridding myself of all this hurt, anger, um, pain, um, whatever it was, Immediately after my depression, irritability, anger, all that was just washed away. The the pain I had been dealing with gone. And it's just opened up a, a new possibility for me. And are are there things in closing, are there things that you do on a daily basis to kind of keep your self neutral, calm? you know, outside of the things that, you know, you do to respond to 
uh, you know, the, the anger and the irritability and things like that. But are there, are there things that, is there, is there things that you have that you feel like you need to do as part of your daily routine? I wish I was more like my son. My son is so good. He does like daily meditation. He does breathing exercise. He does all the things that you should do to make yourself mentally stable and healthy. He has the best self-discipline of anyone I've ever met. And he has such a positive impact on everyone around him. I wish I was more like that. Um, I do purposely think about, I try and think ahead of time of the situations I'm going to be in and, and prepare myself. And I, I find myself thinking about relationships and I, and I'm trying to think about, um, how I express love to everyone that I come in contact with. Oh, that's, that's an interesting idea and concept. How do I express love with everyone I come into contact with? Uh, I, I love that. And we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, last question, because I always imagine someone tuning in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Bob Taylor? Well, I would say that you're loved, that um, you're needed. And the feeling that you have of being alone and overwhelmed and all that's really understandable. And what I would tell you is that there's a path forward, that um, there is someone, whether it's in your family or whether it's in a, a, a counselor or a, a pastor or a friend, there is somebody that wants to help you. And I think that uh, uh, it's a it's a dark, difficult day today, but there is a a brighter day ahead. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Make sure you get his book. From Service to Success, New Mission, New Purpose, and New Journey to a Great Life. Uh, remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 988 or any of the other inter- international phone numbers that are listed in the show notes. Uh, there are even numbers if you are in the military or a military vet. There, All that information is in each and every single one of the show notes. You can talk, chat, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thank you very much, Leo. It was a great pleasure.